We've come a long way in our musical worship and presentations to the Lord from those days of me, Karen McGowan on piano, and John McGowan on a keyboard, as I would be playing percussion with this hand and moving the lyrics up on the overhead projector with this hand. I tell you, that's a challenge, and singing lead and all that, when you, yeah. And we were radical back then, man. I mean, we were rad. That's right. We were singing Maranatha worship. And churches were splitting over that in the day. If you remember the days of the worship wars, holy moly, Christians. Man, oh man. Well. Today we are in the inspired, infallible, and authoritative Word of God as it has been given to us in the Gospel of Mark. We've been in it for the past uh, seven messages, a couple of uh, intermissions in between there, so basically a couple of months now, and we will continue, Lord willing. Well, we're all in a pilgrimage. We are all in various places on this road and following on the heels of Jesus and as you go along your walk of faith, every one of us is going to come across and has come across and will continue hopefully to come across opportunities to speak with people about what makes you tick, about why we are the way we are. And hopefully those questionings will be a good kind of question rather than the, yeah, dude, what, why are you the way you are? You're so weird or whatever. But you know, whatever. And he's recorded some of the experiences of God in human form, what we call the incarnation. And he's recorded them for us who experience the same things. You know what I mean by that, just kind of life and all the hassles and challenges that life brings. And needless to say, we can learn a ton duh, from God in human form as he had to walk the same planet that we walk. Last week, we left right in the middle of what I would kind of call a Pharisee smackdown, where Jesus is enduring questions, uh, yeah, questions, better accusations from the experts in all things religious, as the Pharisees were. In verses 21 and 22 of Mark chapter 2, Jesus then, and again, this is kind of review here, uses two short parables to mark a change in the dialogue between himself and the Pharisees, which mark a shift to a broader discussion of theology. Up until this point, it's all been kind of uh, discussion at a personal level, but now it's getting very broad to the area of theology. And in Jesus' parables about the new patch on old cloth and about putting new wine into old wineskins, Jesus is letting people know that that transition that I talked about last week from the Old Testament forms of worship and ritual called Judaism is now making its way, again, in that transition to New Testament Christianity. It's full steam ahead now, no looking back. Contained in those parables is a subtle announcement that Jesus, in those parables, basically is the new cloth and the new wine. And the Pharisees are the old cloth and the old wine skins. And if you're familiar with the parable from last week, the portent for the Pharisees is not good because the outcome in those parables is that the new destroys the old. 
In my experience with several churches up close and personal and many more churches by association, one of the more significant impediments to a church being used by God to the extent that he would like to use the church to are members of the church who have come to take ownership. Now, that usually has a good connotation, but I'm talking about it in a bad connotation. That is, they've come to take ownership of what they see to be their church and they've come to take ownership in all the wrong ways these would be the we've never done it that way before folks or the anything outside their cultural comfort zone folks meaning their personal preferences and it's uncomfortable and so it's resisted if not rejected when anything new or different is tried to to uh be integrated into some new, not theology, but new forms of worship. And if such folks don't relinquish control, their church will die a slow death. Because if it attracts anybody at all, it attracts only those who, from are, who are from their particular culture, who share their particular preferences. When I came here to faith, We were a church of about 30 people, adults, children. I think we threw in a couple of dogs. Cats were not allowed, but that's... And back in those days, you know, the the uniqueness, the unfortunate uniqueness of having a very small church is that it only takes, really, even one person can cause major upheaval and can cause major breaks to be put on in a church going forward and coming into the fullness of what God wants. And anywhere along the way over those first formative years here at Faith, anybody in that early church here over on Rice Rips Road could have really messed up the gearing and everything come to a grinding halt. And had that happened, at least looking from human eyes, the church would still be over on Rice Rips Road. And I would have been gone many, many, many years ago. But that wasn't where that church was. They knew that the church was theirs. They had the ownership of it in all those right ways. But it wasn't their church. It was the church of Jesus Christ. And they really were willing to put up with my experimentations and what I believe the Lord was calling us into and the rest as they say, is history. Well, in a much bigger and in a much more significant way, this is what was happening in the book of Mark. It's what was happening between the Pharisees and, again, this this new birth, if you will, of the new church. And so the controversy continues between this new rabbi, as Jesus was just called the rabbi, between him and the ruling religious class of the day. And in verses 23 and 24 of Mark chapter 2, this is what we read. It happened that Jesus was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, if that was an honest question, it wouldn't be so bad. But was that an honest question from what we know? Were they seeking truth? Were they simply trying to understand what this new rabbi was saying and what he was doing? (laughs) 
I heard Ravi Zacharias say one time, this was many, many years ago, it's not the honest doubters that God minds, it's the dishonest doubters. That stuck with me. It's the ones who ask questions, not seeking truth, but seeking to argue, seeking to just justify their own position, or sometimes as with the Pharisees, seeking to indict. We should extend ourselves or even inconvenience ourselves for the one we should ignore or otherwise avoid the other. If the Pharisees were really looking for answers, Jesus would have spent all night with them. Jesus would have spent the next day with them. He would have spent the next whatever it would take to, to, to get through and to answer their honest questions. Think back to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. John writes, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. You see, Nicodemus was someone of importance even among the Pharisees. But unlike the majority of the Pharisees, Nicodemus was actually seeking truth. We read in John 3, verse 1 and 2, This man came to Jesus by night, referring to Nicodemus, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And then what follows is an interchange with Nicodemus asking question after question, seeking clarification, seeking real understanding of what it means to be born again. Nicodemus was looking for honest answers to sincere questions. And we know this because of what the Gospel writer John would later record in chapter 7 and chapter 19. We see that Nicodemus was in fact a Pharisee who is now among the believing brethren and cistern in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, unlike Nicodemus, though, the Pharisees whom Mark highlights simply want to discredit Jesus because he was cutting into their kingdom, cutting into their self-imagined kingdom of imagined power and imagined authority and respect. Why, Jesus, are your disciples doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Such indignation. But it's not an honest question. And Jesus hands them humiliation on a platter. Remember, the Pharisees were experts in the Old Testament. That's what they prided themselves on. And they loved making sure that everybody knew that they were experts in the Old Testament. So Jesus' reply is instructive in Mark Verses 25 and 26 of chapter 2, Jesus said to them, Have you never read? Now, imagine that being said with biting, sarcastic tone and mannerism, because that is the way it's intended. And he said to them, Have you ever read? Meaning, I'm sure you have. What David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? Haven't you ever read how he entered the house of God in the time of Aviatar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest? And he also gave it to those who were with him? Seriously, have you not read? And Jesus' answer comes right out of the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative word of God called the Old Testament. 
And note that even Jesus, even Jesus, who is authority in and of himself, frequently gives answers that come right out of the word of God. Think about it when he was in the wilderness and being tempted by Satan. How did Jesus answer? Uh, Well, uh, you know, I think, uh, well, uh, I believe, you know, it's my personal conviction that, no, Jesus said, it is written. Question two, it is written. Question three, it is written. God in human form answered from the same source of knowledge and wisdom that we have. And in fact, we have more because he only had the Old Testament. We have the Old and New Testaments. So what does that mean for us? Well, among other things, that there's value in determining who is the honest doubter and who is the dishonest doubter. In fact, it seems necessary to determine, at least at some level, who is the honest doubter and who is the dishonest doubter. Hmm. Maybe you don't like where that is taking you in your thought processes there. Does that sound arrogant or unkind or impatient or (gasps) judgmental? Oh, nobody wants to be accused of being judgmental today. Matthew the Gospel writer, records in chapter 7, verse 6, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Do you know who said that? Jesus. And in what context did he say that? He said it in the context of instruction to us. Now, Just a little bonus thought for you. No extra charge for this this morning. Do you know what comes, just five, count them, one, two, three, four, five, verses before the verse I just read? Here it is, Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Wait, huh? Well, I point this out because this just may be the most misapplied passage in the New Testament by non-Christians and Christians alike. Oh, judge not lest ye be judged. Hmm. Jesus says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. And yet five verses later, he gives us instruction that clearly demands that we make some sort of serious judgment as to who the honest and dishonest doubters are. Now you wristle with that one for a while. Because it's beyond the purview of today's message. We move along. Let's get back, though, to the dishonest doubters at hand, also known as, according to Jesus, dogs and swine. Oh, that's not the Jesus I know. I know. The Pharisees were masters of the letter of the law. And they were masters at pointing out minute infractions of every law when it was convenient for them to do so. And yet themselves violating what were the huge, clear, obvious violations of the law. Well, before you click your tongues, our sin natures, all of our sin natures, incline all of us to such hypocrisy. Oh, one great example. Just before we came out here, 
we were still living in Chicago, and it was just after New Year's. I mean, like January, it might have been January 2nd, maybe January 3rd. And we were listening to the news. This was a long time ago, and you got your news from the television because you didn't have really any other choice other than radio. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. So I was listening to the news, and something grabbed my attention, and it came on, and all I heard was the door of hope church. And I went, oh, got to listen to that. Well, what it was about was this husband and wife team of pastors, husband, pastor, wife, pastor. They were pastors of the Door of Hope Church in Chicago. And being January 2nd or so, apparently for New Year's, pastor husband and pastor wife were talking, as you know, sometimes we do in New Year's when we look back and we recount, you know, kind of things of the year and highlights and talk about it and all that. That's what they were doing, but then all of a sudden they kind of got into a little bit of a heated discussion, which got even more heated. And it became so heated that pastor wife shot and killed pastor husband. Now, well, it gets better. Would you like to know what the argument was over? It was over. Wait for it. I'll tell you next week. No. It was over who had won more people to Christ in the past year. Honest to goodness truth. (laughs) Wow. So when the Pharisees are huffing and puffing about Jesus' disciples violating the Sabbath, Jesus confronts them with their very selective choosing which parts of the law they wish to concentrate on. The reality was the law was not as the Pharisees viewed it. It wasn't a club in which to keep people in submission. But rather it was supposed to be a loving guide for the betterment of life. And so even God made exceptions based on the spirit of the law. And Jesus thumps them with a passage right out of the New Testament. No, they didn't have the New Testament. And these were the experts in the Old Testament. So Jesus thumps them with a passage right out of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament where David and Aviatar were clearly in violation of ceremonial law. Jesus said to them, verse 27 to 28, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus' point was lost on the Pharisees, but it wasn't lost on the others listening. It's interesting to me that the longer Jesus entertains the duplicitous questions of the Pharisees, Jesus' answers become more and more offensive to these hypocrites. And as I said last week, he was not trying, though, to win them over but the open ears, the open hearts, and the open minds that were around listening to all of this take place. Jesus' answer is unsatisfying to the swine and the dogs. And the first part of his answer is foreign to their way of thinking. To them, the Sabbath was something to be endured until it was over, and then we could go on and resume our normal routines. As far as they were concerned, 
all the laws of God. And in this case, though, the Sabbath ordinance in particular were just, uh, to them, the Sabbath was something that was to be endured. It was just a pain in the neck. To the Pharisees, the inconveniences and the deprivations of the Sabbath were supposed to make them, I suppose, feel more holy or something, but probably more in their thinking was the idea that if you didn't observe it properly, God would be out to get you, so you had jolly well better toe that line. Remember what Solomon said centuries before this. Solomon writes, there is nothing new under the sun. God's wisdom for life, which for the most part is expressed by guidelines, laws, if you prefer. And these laws, these guidelines, were to enhance one's life. And they were viewed, though, by the Pharisees as a divine pain. Isn't this the all-too-common attitude of many today concerning God's wisdom and God's counsel for life? both non-Christian and Christian alike. Instead of a gift that God has given mankind to order our lives to the fullest and the best, more often his rules are deemed as antiquated, as burdensome, and in fact as joy stealers or life robbers. Some of you grew up under pharisaical thinking. Some of you may still be in bondage to such pharisaical thinking. You think about the rules of your childhood, and you just sigh a deep sigh. You remember what your understanding was of Christianity, of being a good Christian. It was that if it was fun, avoid it. If it fits good, you shouldn't wear it. If it tastes good, you shouldn't drink it. If it feels good, don't do it. You deny it. If it doesn't, if it looks good, don't watch it. And if it sounds good, don't listen to it. And on and on the list went. What a warped view of the very character and nature of God. To many, he's not a loving heavenly father concerned for one's best. He's a cosmic truant officer looking for someone to bust. I don't know what your teen years were like. I was actually really, comparatively, a very good kid. Probably not because I was good kid at heart. It's because my experience was I was one of those who anytime you deviated and veered, you got caught. Everybody you were with got off st- and you get caught. So I learned pretty quickly. But, okay, so I'm in high school. And, you know, the woman whom thou gavest to me, Lord, Barbara, then my girlfriend, I'm sure it was her idea. This was way different than my presentation in the first sermon. She, yeah, exactly. And this just stays in here, right? Okay. This may not be Las Vegas, but let's keep it in here. All right. So I'm sure Barbara said to me, it's a beautiful summer day. Hey, let's go out to the forest preserves. The forest preserves, you're like, a what? In Chicago, we have forest preserves. Otherwise, everything would be concrete and cement. They're preserved little, and I mean little, sometimes segments of forest. And they even go so far as to oftentimes dig a man-made lake. Lake. Man-made. So they're not all that big. 
So here we are, we're seniors in high school, got my wheels, and we cut class. I th- yes, I know. And I th- honest, and I'm, here, I'm not kidding, I'm perfectly serious. I think it was the first time I had ever cut school in four years. Four years, I mean, in all of my school, okay? So here we are, we're out at the Forest Preserve, and I'm a little anxious, nervous about it anyway, because I know what's going to happen based on experience. And Barbara and I are walking, hand in hand. And we look across the lake, and we see a guy across the lake, and he's walking. And I'm like, and I mean, we are there wide open, right? And this guy goes, it was Mr. Yost, who knew me. Because he works with my works after hours with my mom as police security at the mall where my mother was working, and that's all he did was wave. <laughs> but that's a lot of people's view of God, you know. You're going to do something nice, something fun, something enjoyable? That can't be of God. Boy, you know what? I've got three job offers out there. Two of them are horrible. One of them is like the dream of my life, so I know that's one. That's not it. It's like, where do we come up with this stuff? Ah, Mr. Yost. Hmm. And he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything except tell my mother whom I feared more than, in those days, the Lord himself. Yeah. And, of course, I threw Barb under the bus. Took my mother many years after our marriage to get to really like Barb. Um, Remember, this goes nowhere else, right? If the first part of Jesus' answer to them about their disingenuous question is foreign to them, the second part is even far more troubling to these proud religionists. For in that statement, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, Jesus is clearly again announcing that he is the one who defines what is and what is not without boundary. What is and what is not in everything. Jesus even defines theology. Which is why it just amazes me. The people who wear the name of Christian today, I I hear it commonly. Well, that's not the God I believe in. (laughs) Well, that's not the Jesus I know. (laughs) Okay. In the combined interchanges with the Pharisees, Jesus takes one aspect of his existence after another after another, claiming absolute authority over everything, meaning he is none other than God. He's not merely a good teacher. He's not merely the kind physician. He's not just the wise counselor. He's not the charitable comforter or the dynamic prophet. He is God. 
And this is all going to continue to escalate, but Paul doesn't, <clears throat> but doesn't come into clear focus until after Jesus is crucified and resurrected, which is why Paul writes to the Colossians in chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. For by him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. In the context of Mark, the eternal Savior of mankind created the Sabbath rest with the practical benefit right now of R&R, rest and relaxation, for the time being, as I said. But even more, as I noted last week from the writer of Hebrews, the Sabbath rest points ultimately to the rest for all who embrace this authoritative Lord of the universe. But the Sabbath controversy isn't finished. Verses 1 through 4, chapter 3 of Mark. Jesus entered again into the synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They, the Pharisees, were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, to the Pharisees, Is it lawful to do good? or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill. But they kept silent. Why did the Pharisees keep silent? Was it because they didn't know the answer? Or was it because they knew the answer, and they knew that if they said the answer, they would be self-incriminating? Yeah, we don't want to answer this one. <clears throat> Gulp. Gospel writer Matthew includes something that Mark does not. In Matthew 12, verse 11 and 12, Jesus said to the Pharisees, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You see, the Pharisees knew the answer. But answers, at least honest answers, were not their concern. And when wicked people have wicked intent, truth is usually the first casualty. You can read examples of this every single day in the newspapers or online or on the radio. Quoting real life. The fact is, we had four dead Americans... Was it because of a protest? Was it because guys go for a walk one night and decide they want to kill some Americans? What difference at this point does it make? Hillary Clinton on Benghazi. This line of questioning is uncomfortable. I cannot give truthful answers without incriminating myself. So I will feign indignation and hope to evade the question. That's not a quote. That's me interjecting here in case you didn't follow that. Paraphrased, don't confuse me or the public senator with the facts. The Pharisees kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, 
grieved at their hardness of heart. That's an interesting juxtapositioning of those two emotions. Those two emotions obviously are not mutually exclusive. Jesus was both angry and at the same time he was grieved at the hardness of their heart. And Jesus said to the leper, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Question, why did Jesus heal the leper? Was the healing of this leper about Jesus' healing because that is what Jesus does? Let me rephrase it. Was the healing of this leper about Jesus' healing because he came to heal mankind of their diseases and their pains and their discomforts? No. The healing of the leper is about Jesus' authority over everything, which includes even the hallowed theology of the Sabbath because he is no less than God. Which is why the Pharisees went out in verse 6 and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. The kingdom of darkness hates light and will do what it can to eliminate and put out such light. This is why Christians are being hated more and more and rapidly as the days go by. Something I picked up on Facebook yesterday, but from the Bangor Daily News, and I checked it. It's legitimate. How many of you are familiar with a ministry here active in Maine called Good News Clubs? A few people, okay. Catherine Stewart author of The Good News Club, The Christian Rights Stealth Assault on America's Children. I could write an essay just on that title of her book. We'll talk about The Good News Club being in 60, that's 30% of Maine's public elementary schools, to proselytize young children to fundamentalism. Catherine will also expose the frequent community division that occurs when groups use public schools to advance their religious views. This is being sponsored by and held at the Universalist Unitarian Church in Augusta today, by the way. And here's the irony and where we are as a culture. We read that to expose the frequent community division that occurs when groups use public schools to advance their religious views, which means to advance Bible-believing Christians' views. Let's not play games. Right now, a couple of miles away from here, the Mitchell School. It's made national news outlets, not network, not major news outlets, meaning ABC, CBS, NBC, MSC, you know, all that. If you didn't know, right now, this was just a few days ago at Mitchell School. They are openly teaching transgenderism to the little bitty kids that are there. And that's where they have, by the way, the new government indoctrination program for preschoolers, all paid for with your tax dollars. But God forbid that we should not deal with Christianity being taught as a constitutional right, as any other group, religious or otherwise, having access to the public schools by constitutional right, God forbid that we should permit Christians to be able to do that. 
That's where we are as a culture. (laughs) John writes in chapter 3, verse 19, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? For their deeds were evil. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. Back to Mark, verse 7. And a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that Jesus was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. Why were they going to crowd him? Was it because that after all they had heard and seen about this Jesus, they just wanted to be near him? They just wanted to get close to the incarnation of God on earth so that they may worship him and give him his due? No. It was because, the end of that passage, he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. The text tells us plainly. Mark adds, Whenever the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Again, this is repetition from something Mark's already covered. At the first time Jesus is recorded to have gone into the temple, which means it's important, which means... The writers are trying to get some things across that the Holy Spirit wants us to make sure we get. This is what I said five weeks ago. Even the miracles of the Savior were an impediment to his real reason for coming, which was proclamation that while they were all born in sin, condemned to die an eternal death, the sinless one had come to remove from them the penalty of sin by giving to all who would believe his own righteousness. I just remind you of that again to say that, you see, I don't just pull this stuff out of the air to make my point. It's not because I'm anti-supernatural or because I don't believe in miraculous healing. But the challenge is to get the masses to see God as God, the real from the fake. And even his servants as those raised up by God from those who are servants of God but posers. There was, as I said a few weeks back, a bounty of false messiahs at the time of Jesus' coming. His character was in question. His abilities were in question. His authority was in question, which is to say his authenticity as the Son of God, true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was constantly questioned by some, and especially by those who should have known the best. It wasn't a new problem. About six centuries before, this guy named Elijah was trying to get the masses to see the real God. In 1 Kings 17, which is I'm going to read it, but then right after in chapter 18 is one of my favorite passages of the Old Testament where Elijah, you talk about intolerant and not politically correct, makes fun and ridicules the Baal worshipers and their god Baal, pointedly. 
several times. 1 Kings 17, 17 through 24, Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. He died. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You've come to me to bring iniquity to my remembrance and to put my son to death. He said to her, Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living, and he laid him on his own bed. He called to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray you let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Now here it is. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are genuinely the real deal. You are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. And it is truth. Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the one and the only. And for whatever is going on today down at the Universalist Unitarian Church, whatever false gospels are being preached across the world, churches today wearing the name of Jesus, you know, we can only be responsible for what we are responsible for, which is first and foremost our own lives, our own spiritual fidelity and integrity, then the lives of our children, and then the lives of those that God puts across our path in our pilgrimage in obedience to him. And the real God, the real God, the God of Elijah, whose name, by the way, is Eli Adonai, or Eli Yehovah, which means my God is God. And there was proof he was the real deal. And so God calls us to be those fishers of men. First to believe in that God of gods, the real deal. Not the one of your own creation or the one of the culture's creation. But the one and the only who has the only solution for hellfire, which is real. Do you know this Jesus? Let me have you stand. Jim. Uh, you know about Twitter and emails, right? How many sent emails to Barb? <laughs> She's not on Twitter. Oh, she on email? No. As no. of now, no. <laughs> She's not on Facebook either, as yeah. of now. Well, we knew you threw her under the bus, so we're going to pray for you. 